this is Nat with Yatanaset. Hi, this is Michael Waits. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Asian Fintech Podcast. I'm so excited to introduce our first guest, Sharon Lords-Paul. She's the head of regional payments for Southeast Asia at Xverse, a Singapore-based fintech company that provides payment infrastructure to help businesses get paid online. Hi, Sharon. Hi, hi, Ned. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Good, good. Cool. Let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us your journey? What got you to where you are today? What led you to X First? Yeah. Okay. So maybe just a very quick one-two lines about X First. We are a payments company in Southeast Asia, and the focus that we've been having for the past few years, so started since 2015, has been the underbanked sectors. So one of which is the crypto industry in Singapore, in Indonesia. You know, I think through this call, I mean through this chat, we'll talk about that. And how I landed into X First is partly because um, I mean. I also did know the founders during my post-university days, prior to even them actually starting uh, Xverse then. And you know, since I think I joined them around 2019, so what happened was I kind of accidentally, I guess, fell in love with the whole crypto industry, even though it was pretty much Wild Wild West, especially in 2017 and 18. <laughs> so in 2019, I think when the whole hype kind of died down by then, I kind of asked myself and I realized that I still want to do something like full-time uh, professional in this industry. So that's where, of course, being friends with the experts team, they do want to, you know, make the crypto industry more accessible and starting out in Singapore. So that's where, you know, they kind of invited me and, you know, consider whether I'll take up, you know, role within the firm. Even though back then I was considering other firms trying to open offices here at APEC. But you know what, I was kind of thinking, okay, you know, I think it's more meaningful, in fact, to actually maybe join a team that it started in Singapore, in Southeast Asia, trying to make this market more accessible for this market too. So yeah, so that's why I joined them. And since our listeners are from across the world, maybe we should give them a bit of context on what is Xverse. Yeah, happy to. So Xverse, yes, a payments company. Most recently, we did announce in uh, March this year that we are also part of an Indonesian group called Fast Financial Group. So what we are is that, you know, I think our premise is around opening up certain markets. So the whole concept of accessibility, starting out with payment. You know, every time you buy a certain goods, you know, you definitely need to pay for it. You know, whether it's just, I don't know, buying food or buying an investment product, you know, it always starts off with being able to pay. So that's kind of what Xverse strongly believes in. So it's a concept of, you know, creating inclusion across all different types of services, focusing on our position as payments. So what we do is that there's two sectors that we focus on. So I briefly touched about the whole crypto industry. So we don't sell Bitcoin and stuff like that, but we definitely help exchanges who are trying to open up this market here in Singapore. So we are the payment gateway for them. And the other extreme, so in Indonesia, the market that we have kind of found our dominance in for the past two years, I'll say, it's the warongs in Indonesia. So warongs are like the mom and pop stores in Indonesia. So one of the sister brands, very dominant sister brand in, within the fast financial group is basically called PayFast. So PayFast, you know, they give the warong shops a mobile app and through the mobile app, they kind of become that resident ATM machine or financial services vendor for their local community. And within that app, Xverse is then the payments, you know, infrastructure, APIs and all the kind of stuff to enable actual money flows. So yeah, so that's what we are today. Can I back up for a second, Sharon? Because both mm-hmm. of these, both of these sort of payment places are really interesting to me. Can you just yeah. dig in a little bit more detail for what it means to be the payment gateway for the exchanges? In other words, how does that work logistically? If I have fiat currency into crypto, or how does that work? 
Yeah, I think good question. Something to note about fintechs and payments. So payments is probably one of the oldest form of fintech around, you know. Before us, there was the likes of US darlings like Stripe. And before them, there was PayPal and so many other, you know, decades old payments vendor, right? So payments is really kind of the early fintech players. But the thing about fintech players in general is that, you know, we are always some sort of an interface on top of the existing local banking rails and regulatory rails. Money is important, right? Especially when you're in the business of helping a consumer, more so consumer than businesses even. Regulations always have to happen because, you know, the government is doing their job to protect their citizens. So typically as a payment gateway, trying to facilitate payments for a certain industry, in this case, let's say, let's take the crypto industry, we do need to take that into account. We have to play that middleman, you know, to kind of be that responsible party in the eyes of the regulators and also the banking partners to make sure that we have our controls in place. And we then facilitate, in a way, we're kind of educating the merchants. So if you want to be in the business of buying and selling Bitcoins to fellow Singapore residents, we do then tell them, hey, okay, this is all the information that we need, the compliance stuff, because we know that's what the regulators want. And underlyingly, you know, we are integrated with the banking system here through APIs and stuff like that and to do the actual fund flows, right? So what that means is that, so let's say myself, let's say I want to buy something from a crypto exchange. It typically deducts the funds from my personal banking account. So Xverse basically is integrated with Singapore's banking rails to then facilitate that transfers to collect money from my bank account. We collect it on behalf of the merchants and then we settle it with them with whichever bank account they own. You can think of it as the first layer being the banking rails where the the interbank are connected to one another and do transfers between banks, right? And the second layer on top is where expert lies, which is the, the layer where they instruct the banks to do certain type of transfer. And then on top of that is the exchange and other third-party applications to facilitate that. So I want to go back to this war room thing again and get more detail, and I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. A lot of our listeners maybe haven't been to Indonesia, and I don't think they understand the lack of access to cash yeah. If that makes sense, right? And I was I was telling Nat a story offline where when I was living in Japan in the early to mid 90s, that we had the same problem. I would go out to the countryside for the weekend and I couldn't get any cash. And there was no way to do it because the ATMs were either closed or didn't take my card, which I know is probably surprising for you. But if you can run through that process, why somebody who owns a warung, which is like a mom and pop store, like you said, would do this? What's the benefit to them? Obviously, there's a benefit to the people that are out in the countryside, but how does that work as well? Yeah, I think when we look at city centers, right? You know, malls are crazily crowded and every mall has like multiple bank outlets and not just the bank outlets, but ATM machines as well. Sometimes in every floor, you know, just to make it super easy for, you know, shoppers in all these malls to do all your banking of cashing out and stuff. So I think it's kind of the same human behavior. So Obviously, you know, it's expensive for a bank to sometimes put a physical outlet at a place where there's really not much footfall. So let alone sometimes ATM machines or so, you know, it doesn't require much real estate. But, you know, for their own reasons, maybe banks just choose to not even put an ATM machine there. Right. Definitely no malls as well, because again, the population in somehow rural areas are too small. So that's why I think a lot of mom and pop shops you know, in Indonesia, I guess they call it warongs, are flourishing. So they're also kind of that trusted, you know, that auntie or uncle that, you know, is a, you know, that knows the lives of their local residents. And also, you know, they are kind of like that mini shopping mall. So it's very common where the local residents spend their time to shop, even though I guess the options are you not know, items available for sales naturally less than a mall. 
but it's still the same behavior. You know, they go them to shop, sometimes also restaurants. So I think just an open disclaimer is that we are starting to notice that they are downloaded not just by the Warong owners, but by like restaurant owners too. So for them, it's, you know, they've always been the business of selling food. If you're a restaurant owner or you're selling groceries and stuff like that, if you're a Warong, but everyone kind of wants to earn a little bit more as well. You know, they all are small business owners. Payforce kind of exploded or, you know, when we talk to the other agent networks too, because experts actually onboards are uh, not just Payforce. People are always happy to, you know, find, have additional means of income. And this actually grew more, uh, you know, last year during COVID, where COVID happened. We were worried initially about the, the premise of Warong's being able to accept cash and then make digital fund transfers, you know, on behalf of their community. But we realized that, hey, it's actually interesting. The reverse actually happened. Thankfully, I guess the cash economy kind of stayed on. But if anything, agents that were initially hesitant or you know, there were just some inertia to download like fund transfer apps, was they actually kind of reduced. So a lot of them just decided to try because it's extra income. Can I jump in here and try to understand a bit who are Xver's biggest competitors? Is it international guys like Stripe or is it the regional payment network like 2C2P? Yeah, now I'll say definitely the latter. The former is a case whereby I think Southeast Asia, maybe Singapore aside, so Singapore has definitely become kind of a card economy. A lot of our payments, you know, offline off, or online are mostly through card. But in the region, it's mostly non-card. So your bank transfers, the rise of the wallets, definitely for sure. Sometimes your nearest convenience stores and then uniquely depending on the country, then like the likes of the mom and pop shops. So there's definitely more of non-card payment methods. So definitely the latter. To take a step back a bit, right now you're tackling this payment infrastructure for the Warungs or the Unbanked and also providing an on-ramp and off-ramp for the crypto exchanges. What was the initial vision for the founders behind this company? And I guess, how does that fit in with yours? Maybe I've been brainwashed. I don't know, for me personally, before I joined university, sometimes when I share this story, people are like, oh, wow, that's quite a story too. So Ing Lan Tan from Xenia Ventures, he's probably very known now, right, as a VC guy. I was very fortunate. So before joining college, I'm from uh, Singapore Management University. I thought I was always going to be like, you know, an, okay, not an investment banker, but I was always captivated by being a management consultant, right? So that was kind of like my interest going to university. But, you know, I kind of, before in Singapore, before you join university, especially for girls, because uni starts in around August. So you essentially have eight months of nothingness. <laughs> so most will, you know, take on jobs, internships, or you can you know, just enjoy your life. For me, you know, I was kind of just curious to know, okay, let me just earn some side money. But maybe because, I don't know, I, the, I did the appeal. Of, so I kind of tried different jobs, right? You know, being a, the standard, being a stall, retail girl scooping ice cream. We kind of did all that and then got bored. <laughs> so yeah, so what I did was uh, I started writing in to, uh, to find like long-term internships, like six months long kind of internships. And I was very lucky that I then found a position in the Ministry of Trade in Singapore. So very government-like. But I was then assigned to be intern of England. So he was really back then, I think it was like 2008, obsessed around like venture capital as an industry. You know, he was him that, you know, kind of told me that there's a huge gap because I think, I think he came from Carnegie Mellon and I'm not sure where he did his master's, but, you know, he kept, he was very captivated about the whole venture as an industry. And that's what during six months, you know, just supporting his work as a government officer back then. 
I was then very obsessed around like, yeah, actually you're right. There's a huge gap in Singapore. There's a huge gap in Southeast Asia. Why isn't there, there's businesses, no doubt, but in Singapore, but why isn't there that crazy kind of venture back trajectory that now under his internship then, like I learned of this kind of crazy multiple growth, you know, funded by capital, whether it's the whole like of smart money or just money, the kind of concepts like this, I kind of learned from him. Since university in 2008, I just realized I revealed my age, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was very obsessed with like Southeast Asia. You know, I kind of decided that, okay, I think it's a career path. You know, I want to join a, whether I started my company or not, or to join an early back company, you know, early stage company, it has to be Southeast Asia. Yeah, so that kind of charted it. And Express actually has that dreams, right? The founders, uh, two of them were working in the state. In Singapore, there's this program called NUS Overseas College, even though I'm from SMU. So that was also my impression that a lot of the Singapore founders really come from that program. So shout out to kudos to NUS. So they, they went through that program too. So after working in US for quite some time, you know, they, had, they realized this need for better online banking in Singapore and they came back. So I think their personalities and their interests, you know, how, what they do really resonated strongly with me too. They also wanted to provide better payments in Southeast Asia. That was really their day one vision, 2015. So it was a perfect fit. Sharon, a lot of founders start a company to solve a problem that they were having themselves. Yeah. Is that the case here? And if it is, maybe you could tell us the story of why these guys founded this company. Yes, yes. So very good lady, Michael. <laughs> For anyone <laughs> tuning in, you know, can I share? <laughs> so apparently I was briefed before, uh, just, you know, just to prep. And uh, Michael stopped me here when I was telling this story because he's <laughs> you're saying it's too good. We're <laughs> saving it for the listeners. <laughs> yes. So yes, so now I'm going to share the story. Um, so yeah, you know, the funny thing is that when I first joined First, right, there was a company retreat a week before my official start date. So they were like, hey, Sharon, you know, this is the best time for you to get a download of a company, you know, into your first proper week with us. Why don't you join us for the retreat? Express has four co-founders. I'm good friends with two of them. So there were the other two that I didn't know. One of them is the CEO now, so Tian Wei. The other one is Samson, our legal guy. So it was two of them that I didn't really know them very well prior to joining Expert. You know, one day I was having lunch during the retreat. You know, I asked Samson, the legal co-founder, saying, hey, actually, I just realized this. How do you guys start Expert? And I always knew it was something to do with like personal experience of like some struggles they saw in Singapore in terms of payments, but I never knew the exact trigger so then Samson told me like, oh, you don't know this story. I was like, yeah, it's nowhere to be found. And even like Google is not reported at all. So he shared that Tian Wei was actually an engineer. So I always knew this, right? Tian Wei, the, our main CEO, is an engineer in Amazon before he started Express. So Amazon, I think that was 2013 or 14. So a lot of us in Singapore, were, it was really very tough to get Kindle. For two years, he was taking massive orders on a regular basis for Kindles to ship over to his Singapore friends. And there was one year, particularly in 2014, that there were so many orders, I think I heard 20 over, that some of them did not pay. And he being, I mean, he's a nice guy, so he didn't want to you know, chase and call anyone out. But he was also lazy, he didn't want to text everyone, right, of who has not paid or paid. So he kind of hacked out something to kind of detect who has paid. So he built a little mini checkout page and a whole bunch of like automated email reminders. That is awesome. Go ahead. Yeah. So if you didn't pay, his system will realize that you didn't pay and then he will send you a reminder through email. So it's a very professional way of like, you know, asking, telling you that you owe me money. So there was a start, Genesis. And Blockshop was also the rage in Singapore. 
So what happened in blog shops, right? A lot of girls were setting up stores, online stores. So they bulk buy maybe like a lot of shirts of fashion and then they try to sell it. And if you want to pay for it back then, this was before Singapore became a country too. So a lot of people, you'll see long queue, massive queue. Any Singaporean that's tuning in right now, right? You'll remember massive queues at ATMs because there were many people trying to shop online and they did ATM bank transfers. What happened was that my one of Tianwei friends got that reminder that he owes Tianwei money for Kindle. He thought it was awesome. And his girlfriend was also running one of these blog shops. And he told Tianwei, like, hey, can you, whatever you have done, can you help implement this for my girlfriend? Because she's up like so many hours, like so late, just tracking who has paid and not paid for her stuff on a store. So that kind of ignited, I think, you know, to Tianwei and our CTO to know, maybe there's something back home in Singapore that, you know, their, their payment methods are just really bad. That's when they were in the US, right? This started when in the US, like all this, even helping, you know, this Kindle story, this blog shop stuff happened all in the States. Their trigger, I think, to quit their jobs was they applied to YC and they had a pact. They were like, guys, if we get into YC, we have to quit our jobs. So they made a promise to each other so they, and they got in. So they, they had to fulfill their promise. So they basically started this out of their own pain point and then saw that there's an opportunity in Singapore and that's why they applied to become a YC company. And that's the start of X first today. Yes, yeah, we correct, see it. Correct. That's an amazing story. I'm glad we saved that for this. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it's interesting enough. <laughs> Even though you outed me to all the audience, but yeah, sure. I'm glad we waited for sure. <laughs> I think we spoke a little bit about how you're trying to become a payment infrastructure for businesses and the rooms and the underbanked in Indonesia. Do you see that problem across Southeast Asia? Why Indonesia is the first market that you're going after outside of Singapore? I think it's because, you know, like I said, that payments, every payments player, it's an interface. They're just an intermediary, right? Between the banks and the regulators and then the merchants. So it's a lot. That is pretty challenging if you actually try to do everything from scratch. So that's why, I mean, Singapore is our hometown. So we started in Singapore, right? Indonesia, the reason why we started Indonesia first is because post-YC, Xwas did get investments from a few Indonesian funds. One of them is even a family-owned uh, bank. So that kind of gave the confidence for the founders to have inroads and, oh, let's figure something out in Indonesia. The truth is, you know, we didn't, the company didn't really get any investors much from the other ASEAN companies, right? Or at least people who are really in the banking system in other countries. So I think that's kind of the truth of why we didn't venture out so soon. But right now, I think what we are realizing is that this nature of war wrongs that you mentioned is definitely not unique to Indonesia. It's just something that, you know, experts on our own or, pay f- or fast group on our own didn't yet venture. But right now, as we speak, we do want to work the likes of us in different countries to kind of have a concerted effort. So I think right now our strategy has kind of changed. You know, we don't really desire to build everything from scratch anymore in, in the countries. We respect that there are other players that have done well also, you know, in the, in the recent two, three years and we are looking to partner them instead. What kind of partners are you looking for? What kind of partnerships would help your company expand across the region? I think for us, you know, we always talk about accessibility. So accessibility is also about being there at every touch point that, that, consumers really are when they want to pay for something. So naturally, your wallet players are your, not warong shops, but the mom and pop versions or networks in every country. So in Philippines, for sure, even pawn shops, for example, are a touch point. So that's that's the partners that we are working with. Sometimes we choose to work direct with the channel itself. 
But you know, there are versions of experts in every domestic country. So they have already aggregated all these different payment touch points. So we don't mind working with them as well. What I came across recently is around how central banks are trying to facilitate cross-border transfer through means that people are used to, like QR codes, and trying to help make international transfer easier. For example, the Bank of Thailand is working with the Central Bank of Vietnam to facilitate transfers using QR codes today. What would the future of payment look like for Southeast Asia? Do you see a future where we can make bank transfers as seamless as we send emails today? What are the steps that we need to get there to make payments interoperable regionally? Yeah, I think, you know, we take it for granted, right? For card payments, you know, we have players like all these card networks like Visa, MasterCard that have done the heavy lifting, you know, over decades to study, you know, we don't realize that, hey, you can actually swipe your card easily in any country like Singapore, Japan, US, you know, use pretty much sometimes more, more often than not the same card everywhere. So they have definitely done the hard work of acquiring merchants in, across internationally to speak the same language, which is like the visa network and stuff like that. So I think that needs to happen also in non-card payment methods. So Southeast Asia or ASEAN is definitely unique. You know, we kind of leapfrogged, you know, there was payments uh, through bank transfers, over-the-counter cash, and also definitely the rise of QR payments that is typically tied to the wallet, the dominant local wallet players of each of our countries and the initial genesis of all these wallets, sometimes they are definitely all the popular ride-hailing apps like Grab or Gojek. You know, more often than not, sometimes it's just a wallet by itself that just came in straight away as a wallet player. Yeah, I think definitely, I think governments are trying to, their step of trying to create an interoperability or cross-border payments through non-card payment methods. I think the bank part is kind of settled, right? It's just international bank transfers. But when it comes to QR, the wallets, I think, what I'm observing is that there's two steps. I think the government, first of all, have to have a concerted efforts domestically first. And this has really happened pretty much, I think, if not all the ASEAN countries. Like back in the day, I think just to get two years ago, as recent as just two years ago, when you go down to a popular restaurant, right? At the cashier, it's like a huge, like A3 size poster of like so many QRs. <laughs> it's insane, right? And you see the logos everywhere, like cashback discounts everywhere. And each of them have like their own QR. It's crazy. It's probably so crowded that when you scan, you might accidentally scan a, another <laughs> wallet <laughs> QR. It's so crowded. So every country has now their own national QR standards, right? And the wallets have to accommodate to that one standard first. So that was step one. Once the government has done that, which is essential, then you know, I think the step two can happen, whether it's on a national basis or whether they're private players like us, you know, with cross-border aspirations. You know, we will create ourselves to be that network that is that speaks to different national QR standards. So I think the private players are moving faster than cross-government uh, initiatives. But definitely, I think the government's also looking to that. But you know, the part for payments players that no matter what, sometimes even if the government actually creates a cross-border, maybe Thailand's QR speaks well to Singapore's QR, right? Payment gateways are always needed because end of the day, you know, you need education to onboard the merchants too. So I think that's kind of the, the role of no, most payment gateways like us. So one, we need the government to step in to provide the same QR standard first. And then that's how private players can come in and help be the touch point between the QR standard or whatever, the rail that the government has created, onboard the merchants to use yeah, correct. that infrastructure. 
uh, switch gear a bit to talk about some crypto given the market right now. And yes. it's, uh, <laughs> it's been crazy and you've been in the market for a long time and have seen many booms and bust cycle. I would love to hear your thought on how you compare the current market with the past cycle. Where are we right now? Yeah, so anything in crypto, especially when it's recorded and publicized, I feel obliged to say not financial advice. This is purely for educational purposes. (laughs) (laughs) I think I have to do that. (laughs) Yeah, you know, my personal foray in crypto, just to set the context, was lucky enough to have discovered uh, Bitcoin. Pretty much for ATM. There's a a Bitcoin ATM in Singapore. I think I saw it in 2014. So that's why I went in. So very fortunate that way. But you know, back then I was doing a startup then and I completely forgot that I even had Bitcoin <laughs> to my horror. So in 2017, I remembered because it was the first, uh, it was the second hype, I think, in crypto. I consider 2014 as like the first crazy hype. And to me, you know, sometimes people these days ask me like, oh, you know, you're so early. How do you know about it? But apart from seeing that Bitcoin ATM machine, right? It was literally on like the news in Singapore. Like to me, it was everywhere. Like I was probably, con- I considered myself back then as delayed. So delayed that I just remember I bought then uh, Bitcoin was $1,000 and within two months, it dropped to 200 Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so it's insane, right? So that showed how late I was in that hype because I was pretty much coming in at the peak <laughs> before crash. Yeah, so that was then. The same thing happened again, right? In Q1, 2018. So literally the same narrative, right? I think it went up to 20000 or 19000 and it dropped pretty much over 70, 80% across. But I guess more gradually than the 2014. I think it was a whole year kind of 80% drop. And then now we are seeing another wave up. We haven't seen the drop yet, but it's still the third wave up. The difference is that, so I was not yet an expert during the second wave in 17, 18, but I'm definitely friends with them then already. The behavior is very different, right? I think the whole concept of initial coin offering really went crazy in 2018. You know, what was once exclusive, you know, very hard to get in 2017, in 2018. If you kind of really started reading up a bit more, you know, there were a lot of Telegram groups. You can pretty much, as someone who is quite a new person, newbie in the industry, still get into this kind of like, you know, initial or ICO stuff. And they were raising huge money, like, two-digit millions dollars, right, as a first raise. So it was huge. Yeah, I saw like 20 million, 50 million was was something that's super normal back then. Yeah, 15 million was considered a low raise. Like it was crazy, it's on 18. Now we're starting to see that again, I think in 2021. Less so in 2020, but 2021 again. But if I can say like definitely the amount of raise is significantly lesser. It's probably single digit million, still high, actually still high. I consider it still as high, but it's definitely not as crazy as previously. So hopefully that slows down the pace of like retail money coming in. So that's one. And, you know, speaking as a vendor behind the scenes, regulations has definitely caught up now compared to 18. Xfers being the partner. So back then, Xfers was the payment gateway for Coinbase when they entered Singapore. But Xfers ourselves back then, you know, we weren't fully as licensed as we were today. So back then, you know, Singapore has actually two types of payment players. You can be what we call a standard payment institute or a major payment institute. When you're something of a standard payment institute, the maximum amount of money that actually we can hold at any point in time was only back then 30 million. So very little. So essentially, you know, when crypto was exploding, right, and Xverse was kind of the only merchant that was willing to take on the risk to service crypto as a merchant class, I think what happened was like we started hitting our 30 million so much. So I knew this behind the scenes because uh, I kind of heard from them. 
it was crazy. I mean, I was also a customer back then, but you know, the, the daily limit that you could buy was just cut. Like one day you could buy 5,000, but suddenly the next day you can only buy 500 for that day. It was insane because we had to share the limit. Whereas now I think Express is a major payment institute. There's no such limits and stuff. You know, you can buy whatever you want. It's kind of where it is. But the amount of scams behind the scenes also that we're seeing is definitely different also. I think the, the retail investors now are a bit more sophisticated. They're not, not blindly buying things. I think they have been educated by the news coverages that came out in 2018. So people are a bit more cautious right now for sure. I think they're more educated now also before they buy things. I hope there wasn't too much of a rent. <laughs> no, that was, wasn't at all. Actually, the level of detail is something that's really fascinating for, for both of us, actually. I wanted to jump around a little bit again. You talked a lot through this conversation about financial inclusion. It's something actually that's really important to us. Mm-hmm. We want to talk about it a lot. Why is it so important for experts and, by extension, the entire FAS group? It's pretty much what we focus on, essentially. Why? Like, where where does it come from? In other words, I I get it and I love it, actually. But I'm wondering, like, where that comes from, right? Because you're already financially included, but there are plenty of people that aren't, right? I think for, maybe for FAS as well, right? I mean, they they come from, you know, Hendra, um, the main founder of PayFAS. You know, he doesn't come from a family that's in any of the Indonesian family conglomerates. So that's just kind of put context to his background, right? He's fully, you know, appreciative. Even when we talk to him, you know, he's so appreciative of the time he had in YC and stuff, you know, even in his free time, you know, he's mentoring fellow Indonesian startups and stuff. I think he's really about giving, you know, trying to create more opportunities for fellow um, Indonesians as well. So that clearly motivates him in you know, the concept of financial inclusion. For us in Xverse, you know, most of us, we, we started off, we, we have... Our background is now about 50%. Our team is in Indonesia. 50% is about in Singapore. We do have in other ASEAN countries too. But when the company first started, we were largely all in Singapore. Same actually. We kind of realized that, you know, our backgrounds are pretty much self-made from different opportunities that happen in our lives. Yes, crypto did play a huge part for some of us. <laughs> so we understand the concept of like, you know, how it was so difficult for us to buy things. Like we were just lucky, you know, the right time, you know, maybe for me, like, it was all over the news, but maybe some people didn't read it. I was lucky that I walked past that ATM. Maybe some people didn't ever walk past that ATM. I think the concept of accessibility really resonates with all of us. So, you know, for someone to level up, you know, doesn't matter where you are in life, you know, your adulthood, you know, it's really about access to, access to opportunities. Underlyingly, I think personally, that's what motivates all of us. Yeah. yeah, that's great. That's really great, actually. Before we end the conversation, I wonder what is the role of crypto in the the whole discussion that we've had around making payments interoperable, making finance accessible for everyone, right? What's the role of crypto or digital asset in that, in your point of view, from having worked at a payment infrastructure company? I think the bare minimum, like crypto is just very convenient as an exchange or transfer of value. Even before joining Experts, I used to run a development agency. I had developers that were based in, in uh, Philippines. CoinPH was already making a splash in 2017. So if you're curious enough, you probably have means to uh, buy crypto in Philippines back then. So I was very surprised one day when I was you know, making payroll to my engineers in Philippines. And one of them asked me like, hey, you know, Sharon, is it okay if I get paid this time in USDC? Oh, no, back in USDT, I think. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that there was a fellow, another person in the company was open to accepting payments in crypto. So he was telling me like, yeah, you know, I just think it's much cheaper, you know, and it is, and I checked it out for him. I was like, oh yeah, it is actually much cheaper for him. 
So at bare minimum, I think crypto has is a good means of transferring some sort of value, like a payment thing. Disclaimer is that every, again, regulations comes in, right? That, you know, you have to check you know, whether in your jurisdiction, you know, is crypto allowed as a mode of payment too. So I think that's kind of what I mean also that regulations are creeping in. So as much as a tech, crypto can be used to transfer value or for payment. Sometimes regulations can also make it a very invalid choice for now. I think that's what's happening in some, in some countries. But I think crypto in the long, in the grand scheme of things, you know, especially the boom of decentralized finance, uh, DeFi, I'm starting to see like, you know, sometimes people say that, hey, you know, crypto is just a clone of the banking system. And I don't fault them, you know. If, while, this, while such comments may seem negative, I see it more of a positive light because it is true, right? Um, you know, whatever finance or financial or structured product that has happened in the banking world, it is kind of tried and tested. Like, it's the model that earns money or, you know, there's value in it. So let's take loans. There's something very simple. If you put money in a bank, you know, last time, previously, you do get pretty good interest. That's because the bank is, has also managed to find good returns on your behalf because they are loaning out funds for whatever reasons, whether it's someone wants to get a mortgage for their home or sometimes it is also a fellow financial player that wants to borrow off a bank to do their other stuff. So same, like, you know, in DeFi, there are players like Compound, Aave. There's just a lending protocol, right? Okay, very crypto terms are coming up now. <laughs> but, you know, you put money, you put stablecoin in a RV smart contract. You know, it gives you, a, for now with the market, uh, I think it gives you about 6-7% a year. And someone borrows off the RV protocol at about, I think, 15% cost right now. So sometimes people say like, oh, wow, why is it so high? You know, it's too good to be true, right? 6%. But I think the mechanism of why someone earns money is the same. It's just loans. But I think the beauty of crypto now is that it's becoming so widely accepted that there are many players that instead of borrowing money from the bank, there's enough players that are integrated with having their own decentralized wallets. They are educated enough to then borrow from RV like smart contract, right? The business model is the same. It's still loans. But the, in the most cliche sense, the tech stack is entirely different. But being different is not enough. You need to be widely accepted too. Yeah, I think that's kind of the movement of DeFi and hopefully, you know, it goes into centralized exchanges or banks, even I'm all for that. Because now in the banking world, even for fintechs, right, for us, if we don't, if we don't venture into the crypto space, like every fintech relies on existing banking rails. So no matter what, you're still stuck in that tech stack. But I think crypto right now has a total independence in terms of like how you send instructions for transfers and stuff. And to me, it's just fascinating, right? So I think there's definitely a part to play for crypto in the bigger scheme of things, whether of finance, you know, even beyond payments, it's also finance. And yeah, I, but I think the market is super new, right? There needs to be many players to also widely adopt this and let's just see how it evolves over time. Yeah, I, I do share the same vision that DeFi is creating a new rail for banking, but that's going to be a decade's work from now, right? Because you're reinventing the whole thing from the ground up. But then at the end of the day, the two will probably merge the centralized world and decentralized world. And I'm very excited to see how that will turn out. Yeah. Yeah. Before we end the conversation, I'd love to hear more about your psychic angel investing and your involvement with Rally Cap Ventures. So you want to share a bit about that? Yeah, um, happy to. So yeah, so I think Ned, you're also a fellow member of Rally Cap. <laughs> so that's great that you're doing this podcast. I go back to how I was pretty, you know, for good or bad, I'm brainwashed, right, to kind of be part of the Southeast Asian movement because of my internship with Under England. 
you know, my interest to angel invest really started from then also. Like at the, I think I was like only 17, 18 years old. So where I am right now in terms of investing, right? I honestly don't really quite see it from a monetary point of view. It's really my, I tell my husband that it's my version of an extremely expensive movie ticket. <laughs> so, because I want to watch the show and I want to be part of the show. And, you know, angel investing to me, it is the, the way to kind of really show support for fellow founders, not just for the people, but for the categories that they're trying to really build up. And yeah, it's just really being part of it at the early stage. So that's why I angel invest. And a lot of my thesis is, I think, very aligned to um, RallyCap. So shout out to the, the founding partner, uh, Hayden. So when I got introduced to him, you know, I think it really resonated. He's kind of focused. Rally Cap is about bringing in angels. You don't need to be a founder as well to be an angel. You know, you just need to be interested in the space and preferably also an operator in the space or a VC in the space. The category that I think Rally Cap tries to grow is fintech in emerging markets. So Southeast Asia is definitely emerging. I think fintech's exploding now as well. So it definitely resonated with me and, you know, in a heartbeat, I'm like, yeah, sign me up for it. You know, happy to be a venture partner there. My angel investments are also around these categories. I do invest in fellow fintech firms, both in and outside of crypto. That's awesome. Well, glad that we're a part of this fintech movement together and also yeah. the crypto movement as well. So hopefully both will take off over the next few years. Well, thank you so much, Sharon, for being with us today. And Michael and I are very thankful for your time. And this has been super insightful. Great. Thanks too. Hope uh, Looking forward to your few other episodes, so I'll definitely be tuning in. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.